The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. One of the coolest things about the tech ecosystem is the way founders who grow a business learn so much and make the mistakes that count for experience. It's when they cash out and instead of heading off and partying and relaxing, they invest their real capital and social capital to help other ventures. One of the big names in the local SaaS sales and marketing world who's done just that is Mike Carden. He co-founded Sonar6 in 2006, a SaaS tool for human resources. It won all the awards you could want, blew up around the world, and in 2012 was bought by a big listed US company. It was one of the big early successes in local SaaS. He then went on to be an advisor or board member in high-growth companies like Flossy, Promap, and Ask Nicely, and has shared what he learned from holding the different roles through his great blog posts and many speaking engagements. More recently, he's gone back to being in startup land co-founding Joyous, a conversation-based app to help break HR tasks into small, constant places for improvement. It's a cool app at the front of making work better and at the front of tech. It's a great pleasure to have Mike join us today to chat the journey, getting back on the horse, paying it forward, changing the face of tech past an overabundance of mediocre white men, and maybe the story of how he crashed a plane into the sea. G'day, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's good to be here, Simon. Hey, so tell, tell me first up, like, how was it that you came to um, start Sonar 6? Because SAS wasn't really a, a standard thing in 2006. Yeah, in fact, actually, um, when we did start it, we didn't even know it was called SAS, right? I, I think that um, the idea of, of software as a service and the cloud just, just wasn't a thing. Um, uh, yeah, me and a, and a, and a buddy, um, Mark Hallier, who I met at mountain biking, um, you know, we decided we wanted to start a business and we were, we were kind of hunting around for different ideas and um, I think we were tossing up between between human resources and, and online gambling. Um, yeah, and it was, uh, yeah, it was just simple mathematics, actually. Um, yeah, Sonar 6 was a business that did um, performance reviews, right? And um, yeah, you went out and you, you discovered that most people seem to have some kind of annual performance review. In fact, the maths we did said that it was maybe a, a billion people in the world had an annual performance review and everyone seemed to dislike it. Um, in fact, everyone more than disliked it. And so we said, well, look, there's a, there's a market there. It's like got a billion people in it that are all dissatisfied. Let, let's go after that. And it was... It was that simple. It wasn't. It wasn't born out of a, 
some um, some love for HR. Had either of you worked in HR? Uh, I, I think I described it once that I, I'd been the victim of HR, but um, I hadn't. I hadn't specifically worked in HR. I mean, I'd worked in sales and marketing largely for, um, you know, for for, for the kind of uh, you know, global tech firms that you aspire to join when you leave university. Mm-hmm. So, so some big, big kind of uh, traditional corporate tech, and then you thought um, there was there was a place to start your own. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I worked for for Hewlett Packard, and, and I got made redundant from them at some at some point. And so, um, at, at, I think that was the kind of catalyst I needed to go. Oh, yeah, well, probably the, the kick in the ass I needed to go and say, actually, I should do something on my own since I'd I'd, I'd probably dreamt about that since I was I was young. And nowadays, you know, um, SaaS, you know, software as a service, and the tech entrepreneur and being a founder, they're kind of fetishized and the whole kind of ecosystem there's, you know, people to turn to. And I'm not, not trying to make you sound like, you know, you're from the Jurassic period here. But 2006, <laughs> it was it was pretty early days there. And, and you would have had to have been kind of um, putting the tracks down in front of yourself. What, what was it like kind of having a small startup in what was a big um, tech company dominated landscape? Yeah, and it's, 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 it's hard for me to remember because it's, it's, yeah, just the, the, the main feature of that period of time is it's a blur. Um, yeah, and that's just because there was so much stuff happening. I think that um, I was quite comfortable sitting at, at HP and being kind of defined by my, my role there. And yeah, I, I'd go to a party and tell people, yeah, this is, I'm, I work in sales and marketing for HP and felt, felt pretty good by that. And so it was, um, it was, a, uh, it was discombobulating to suddenly you know, show up and your definition was, I, we, we have a startup business. Because I think um, you know, it wasn't considered to be Necessarily as cool as, yeah. as as working for a working for a corporate, and um, but that that rapidly started to change, and of course there's lots and lots of folk heroes in tech from from you know through generations. I mean it's it's interesting, isn't it? I mean like you know I think that in in the 90s when I was you know, at university, um, uh, yeah, Bill Gates was was you know considered the sort of you know the, the geek entrepreneur that people looked up to, and you know and even you know, by 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 2006 he, he was obviously part of probably two generations previous, right? And we were just going into the era of, you know, I mean, it's the beginning of Facebook, it's the beginning of, um, you know, um, I guess the, the large social media players. And there's a, there's a whole bunch of new sort of tech heroes at that point. So, I mean, yeah, the main thing was that we just didn't know anything though, right? Yeah. Yeah. One of my favourite things about the um, the Steve Jobses, the, um, the the Wozniaks, the, the, the Bill Gates, even HP, is that they all share the same kind of foundation, innovator, ingenious people in their garage myth that New Zealand has, Australia has, <laughs> Canada has. It's yeah. like this, um, this this universal thing. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? I wonder I wonder whether it's um whether I, I often wonder whether those things actually happen or we just actually like like to create the myths in such a way that they work like that, right? So um you know, working for HP, HP, you know, is 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 its founding myth is that you know two guys in a garage you know, in, in in farmland, you know, started this this company making oscillators, whatever an oscillator is, and um, and you know that um and that garage is kind of the birthplace of Silicon Valley, and so you know it has this whole mythology around it. In fact, you, you at HP you sort of grow up with these these big grand ads with pictures of this garage and so on. If you actually go and hunt the garage out, it's you know it's just the garage attached to someone's house with a with a uh, you know a shitty old Chevy parked in front of it and it's just you know, it's just typical suburbia and you kind of wonder how much of the myth has been has been manufactured you, you've built built around the edges so one of the cool things in um, the blog posts that you've written about um, the story and and the times I've seen you speak about the story of Sona 6 is you you had this tension throughout it of wanting to appear bigger than you were because um, 
you know, the HR industry was probably not looking for the most um, innovative and smallest person to serve a Fortune 500 company. <laughs> uh, so you had to appear bigger than you were, this whole kind of fake it as you make it thing that so many entrepreneurs kind of feel a need or maybe have a need to do. And the tension between that and kind of using your, um, your, your uniqueness of being small and nimble to your advantage. It's a really interesting thought. Mm, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it is, um, I think it's actually one of the biggest mistakes we made early on was ignoring the fact that we were new. Um, yeah, you, you kind of, uh, it's, it's funny, like now if you start a business, it's, it's, you, you kind of drift along under the radar as long as you possibly can, and then you try and make it you know, look like you came out of nowhere. And being, being the, the, the new kid on the block and being less than a year old and so on is considered to be really cool. Back in those days, I think when, when we sort of started this in 2006, we'd sort of, We'd sort of try and write stuff on the website about how we'd been founded in 2001 or something. Yeah, we'd kind of just sort of <laughs> just sort of try and create this idea that, that we had some heritage because there was a belief that 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 you know tenure and heritage had had real value, which which it doesn't necessarily. Um, and I think that the the yeah the the the, the big thing we learned was that actually when you're um when you're a small bunch of people kind of working it out as you go along, um, well actually. That's quite an appealing idea to lots of lots of people. So lots of people actually connect at, a, at a quite a human level with the idea that like, hey, here's a group of six, seven, eight, nine, ten people trying to build a business, um, and and that ability to kind of connect with people on a human level, yeah, that goes away when you get big. So so you've actually got large corporations trying to appear more human, and you've got like little startup businesses <laughs> trying to appear less human. It's 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 a contradiction. So yeah, what what I think we figured out after a while is that we should sort of grab that unique stuff and 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 run with it. But at the same time, try to create that feeling of confidence that you had what it took to deliver. And um, there's one one blog post you wrote about um, a phone call and a window. Oh yeah, I mean, so 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 this is this is a great example of just how the world works, right? So so um, Mark and I used to have this uh, office on on Nelson Street where the you know, the, the motorway kind of floods off, and um, and we were we were sitting there. Um, in fact, how we had the office itself is is, is is still incredible to me looking back on it. So we'd we'd rented a um a couple of desks in a shared space, and um and yeah, we were getting bigger and hiring staff, and we we noticed one day that there was like a, an empty office upstairs, and um and rather than kind of contact the landlord about about using it, we just moved in. So so we just carried our computer gear with our small team. It was probably four or five of us at that point upstairs, and and we 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 yeah we we started squatting in this office, and it was um it had previously been an artist's studio, so it it. It was covered in, in paint splatters and it's, it smelt of solvents the whole time. So I don't know what it did to our health, but like um, it, it had windows that went on to Nelson Street, and um, and um, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty old and, and and crusty this office. And one one morning we were on a teleconference, and yeah, Mark was um was was um uh, yeah talking to the the tech team of a potential yeah, potential customer about. You know the quality of our infrastructure and those sort of things. And as he was having that conversation, the, the window just fell out, like literally just like cracked and fell out. Um, and and suddenly it was you know, it was it was a it was a blustery day. We had like rain you know, you know, rushing in into the um you know, into the office. Um and, yeah and um and yeah at that point um yeah rather than sort of you know kind of tell people that hey look yeah we're in, we're in real trouble here and everything's flooding. Mark just really calmly said, oh look I'm I'm sorry I'm I'm not sure if we've got any more questions, but um but the um this meeting room is booked, um, and um, and the other people are waiting outside. So can we can we wrap this up? <laughs> That's fantastic, and and it worked. And so that kind of um, uh, you, you know, I, I think the way that you described that was you know on a tele conference, no one can tell you're a dog. You know, like that mm. thing of you, you can present the story you want. And and t- tell me about that 
that growth that you managed to achieve and and then at what point did you decide to start kind of really basing yourself over in the states and and taking it um taking that market really seriously yeah i mean if i kind of summarize the the growth curve of um of of sonar 6 it's just flat for a long time um you know like like it's it's just sort of in fact it's 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 sort of nothing 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 and then suddenly one day it's it's holy shit like like we we sort of go for probably a couple of years of just grind and then somehow we just sort of crack the formula and we just have people ringing us up and yeah you know, we used to do this thing where we'd, we'd if we if we got a new customer we'd we'd print out their you know print out their logo and we'd stick it on this cork board and um and then we'd kind of celebrate that we had a new customer and we'd have like this sort of meeting to to celebrate new customers every um every month and yeah, maybe there'd be two or three people on the board and, and you know we'd talk about who they were and so on and and um and you know, literally went from that to to yeah we'd be adding you know one two three customers a day and these were big customers and um and you know so I think that there was this sort of really this sort of binary like some some switch flicked where I don't know there's people talk of the tipping point but clearly exists right that suddenly enough people knew about what we were doing and it was credible enough that people wanted to kind of um they want to get behind it, and we'd worked out how to sell it by that point. Um, and so I think that that was, yeah, that was probably, yeah, probably like two years into it. And, and we'd always had sort of global aspirations. We were always selling product in, you know, in, in other countries. But at that point, we went and said, hey, look, we actually need to, yeah, we need to go after where the big markets are. And um, yeah, we moved to, we moved, you know, a lot of our resources to California. Um, and and look, yeah, moving to California was was also about getting closer to the sort of ecosystem, closer to the competition. It's uh, it's an interesting thing, right? You you you, know, you always want to face into competition when you're in, in an early stage business because it sharpens you up. So you sit there in New Zealand, you can get, you know, if you just build success in New Zealand, then you can kind of get comfortable. Um, you know, if you're sitting there, you know, down the road from your biggest competitors and you're 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 butt, butting heads with them every day in in accounts, then you know you'll sharpen up pretty quickly. And with your kind of, you were driving the sales and marketing in that organisation, and I imagine that. You know, when you're dealing with HR software and, and enterprise clients, um, you're dealing against some very well-funded competitors who probably um, spend more on kind of a conference booth uh, than your entire yearly marketing budget in some cases. What kind of things did you have to do to kind of, you know, do the do the classic we haven't got much money so we'll have to think kind of approach to, to standing out? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Like um, uh, there's an expression, isn't it, that constraints are the, the midwife of, of great design. And I think that that idea of having constraints really does does force you to make um, more inventive decisions, right? Um, and so, um, look, um, you know, I'm just thinking on on trade shows specifically. Yeah, we um, uh, used to go to this trade show called the HR Tech Conference, which um, sounds like a fun day out. Right, um, and um, and um, yeah, it's it's a huge conference. I mean, it gets like you know five hundred, six hundred vendors. Um, you know, are at this conference. It was in Chicago in those days, and um, yeah, huge expo floor, and um, yeah, there's there's giant stands that that, that you know people like um, you know SAP and so on put up Oracle, and they're yeah you know, they're two stories high. They have Cirque du Soleil acrobats above them. I'm, I'm not making this no, stuff yeah, up, right? Yeah, it's yeah. just like, and yeah, you, you, know, you sort of walk in there kind of wide eyed from New Zealand, like. Yeah, we're not in we're not in Greylin anymore, and um, and and it's like um, and the thing about it is, is that it's um, uh, you know, basically impossible to compete. 
by running the same rules that they run, right? So if you sit there going, you know, you, you look at those stands and they'll, they'll spend $200,000 easy. You know, they'll, they'll fly in their top execs, they'll you know, do all this construction. Um, and, yeah, we had five or $6,000 the, the, the first time we went there. And so, um, yeah, we did actually, we did actually decide to, um, you know, to, to um, get a booth and we hired the space for a booth. And, um, but instead of, um, of building a booth, we just put a cardboard box in there. And, um, and yeah, the, the, the idea was like that a, if, a big cardboard box. Oh well, it was it was it was big enough to um it was big enough to to kind of fit inside, right? So you kind of um it had a sort of low entrance, and if you if you crouched down and went inside, you, we actually had a, a a video that you could you could watch about the product, um and so big enough to fit like three people in if they were all bending down, and um and um and it was um you know like, I think that the idea we had was that. You know, trade show is not the best place to learn about software that's that's on the internet. The best place to do that's the internet. So we we sort of just you know, made that commentary, and um, and um, you know, it was uh, uh, I guess that's one of the sort of things that that the um the people who run the show don't really. In fact, I think to quote they said we were making a mockery of their show, which was probably true, <laughs> but um, but at the same time it was hugely popular, right? And we um we I don't know someone someone came upon the idea of letting people write on the outside of our box and and. And markers and yeah, before we, yeah, someone wrote "Go Bears" on the side of it. I remember this distinctly. I was like, "Oh, what a moronic thing to write!" But then some kind of like sports debate starts taking place on our box, and yeah, and literally passionate, passionate sports fans who also seem to like HR Tech are kind of descending upon the box to be part of the argument. And it's um, and it's just this, yeah, becomes this complete buzz. Uh, and at some point, I think the um, the the you know, the the people who ran the show decided they didn't. Didn't really want us there anymore. They wanted us to take our box and go back to New Zealand. And um, actually, it's one of my fondest memories of of, of the whole Sonar Six journey was watching uh, my co-founder John Holt being being escorted off the um, off the floor of HR Tech because he is a cantankerous kind of guy. And um, yeah, and, and I mean, yeah, we'd just done everything to to annoy these people. Frankly, looking back on it, it was it was kind of um, yeah, I, I don't know what we were thinking. John went into the uh, into the entry area and took all of the um, the pens, which were you know, sponsored pens by like one of our competitors, and replaced them with our own pens. <laughs> Just and like yeah, and um, and um, I think that also it was the uh, yeah when we were setting up the setting up the booth, um, it was the early days of, of of sort of social and corporate, and so they they'd hired a you know, PR company to 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 manage their social media channels who basically would just retweet anything you wrote. So we'd just write, oh, we're, we're setting up the laser show and they'd, they'd just retweet it and say, oh, laser show's being set up at the Sonar 6 booth and people would get down there, it was a cardboard box. So, <laughs> um, and and the, the funny thing is, I remember that, that, that Kai, um, Kai Crow, who was um, our marketing guy at the time, because frankly, I'm kind of uncomfortable with that stuff. Yeah, like, like, it's like, um, I mean, it makes everyone uncomfortable with that stuff, bar, bar a few people like maybe John. And, um, I remember saying to, to to Kai that I was kind of uncomfortable about it, and he he pointed out to me that if you were wanting to be a disruptor, and yeah, everyone wants to be a disruptor, don't they? If you want to be a disruptor, you're actually going to have to be comfortable with being disruptive, <laughs> which um, which I guess is is the kind of lesson in it. That's so, that's so cool. Uh, that idea of uh, you know um, anyone who's been to any of those big American tech conferences, maybe they've walked the floor at Jarvitz or been to um, been to Las Vegas for something. You know, they are so dull and so corporate and so shiny, and it is amazing mm. that you know with, with some thinking um, and, and acting a bit differently, there is room to to really stand out there. Yeah, and look, look, not just at a at a sort of um, philosophical level either. Yeah, so when we when we actually looked at it. Um, yeah, you know, we looked at the amount of um, coverage we got, 
Um, and yeah, we, we won People's Choice for Best Booth. Um, and um, <laughs> yeah. the circus away dancers kicking the ball. We did all this dancing. Um, and so, like, that, that was, um, you know, um, but, but also, like, if you looked at the, the kind of column inches we generated, to use an archaic term, yeah, we, we completely outstripped SAP, who'd spent, you know, $200,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and yeah, maybe even much more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's remarkable. And, and so, tell me how that ended up going. So, you, you, you got there, you, you got in market. Uh, got some real traction, and then 2012 is quite early for a SaaS exit as well. Um, seeing that you know maybe even the term SaaS wouldn't have been widely known yeah. even in 2012. Um, how, how did that go? And what were the decisions that meant that you and your your team uh, mm. decided your, your co-founders and the rest of the Sonar Six team decided to sell into a listed company? Um, look, I think that that 2012 really is actually the 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 time that SaaS comes of age. Yep. So so what happens in 2012 is that that Suddenly, um, you know, st- still at that point, big on-premise vendors like SAP and um, and Oracle and so on still dominate the software landscape, um, as as they still do, to yep, be honest. Yep. But at that point, they started getting nervous about about SaaS effectively, and they started acquiring. And so, um, you know, um, interestingly enough, SAP acquired a company called Success Factors, which was one of our largest competitors. Um, Oracle acquired Taleo, which was another one. Of, our large competitors, and they acquired them at these at these really high multiples of, of revenue, and so suddenly um, HR SaaS particularly w- was hot, right? It was like um, yeah, people were going, "Hey, these businesses are the future." And of course, when you get big acquisitions at the top of the pile, then what happens is you get lots and lots of investors at the bottom of the pile. Lots and lots of, of VCs, particularly, start flooding in, going, "Hey, um, you know, HR software as a service is the place to be. Let's put money in there." And, w- and what that basically means, if you're if you're someone like Sonar Six, is that that suddenly your 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 big competitors are now part of of even more powerful companies, and your small competitors have have got lots and lots of funding from 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 VCs and no legacy issues, and they can catch you up fast. Yeah, and exactly right. And so yeah. you have you you have no option other than to either take on more funding yourself or take advantage of all of the um, acquisitive behaviour that's occurring, of all of the consolidation that's occurring. And so, um, you know, our shareholders. You know, kind of tossed up between those two choices. You, you, you definitely didn't have a choice of just doing the same thing, yep. right? Um, and I think that that you know, what happens is that we had, um, you know, uh, we'd built our our shareholder register out of, um, you know, kind of high net worths and friends and family and so on, and, and they'd been in it for you know four, five, six years by that point, and you know, taking on more money from an institutional investor would mean that hey, the horizon for them to get some liquidity would be three, four, five years away still. Whereas if we took an you know an exit, then you know people would get get their money, you know, get their return at that point. So that that's kind of what you know was really driven by shareholders wanting to um, get some liquidity in a, in a market which you know was allowing that to happen. And yeah, that window stayed open for about probably eighteen months, and then you know then SaaS multiples started to to drift south again, and you know, and so yeah, so we took advantage of the of the, the market opportunity. And you know, how did it go? Like, was it, was it, I saw in one thing, someone rang you up and said, hey, you'll never have to work again. What are you going to do? Uh, was it really that way? Um, well, I'd agreed to work for the, um, for the acquirer for a couple of years and it was a, it was a cash deal. So I could have left, but, um, but it was interesting. Like um, the, the, the first thing that happened was it was just a weight off your shoulders, right? If you, if you didn't make the sales number for the quarter, I'd ring up my, um, ring up my boss, you know, who was the CEO of, of the acquirer and just go, hey, look, I'm, I'm sorry, but I didn't make the sales number for the quarter, and and then I'd go home and go to bed, yeah. <laughs> and um, and that's that's quite different than startup land, right? Where where you'd sit up all night working out how you're going to pay the staff. Um, but um, 
the other part of it too, though, was that that it was um it was really interesting. So suddenly, I was part of the leadership group of a Nasdaq listed company, and yeah, that's just a rare opportunity. Yeah. Uh, and it was you know, it just it was extraordinary from the perspective of of the level of aggression that they put into growth. Yeah, they were just absolutely uh, hell bent on growing, and they had yeah. We thought we were hell bent on growing until yeah. Like so, if we if we I don't know if we did some list rental and yeah, we spent two hundred thousand dollars and it was a big success. The next year we'd we'd go, oh, let's spend four hundred thousand dollars, and we'd think that'd be aggressive. They would go, what is the most money we can possibly spend next year on list rental? Yeah, that and that you know they'd go, oh, we can spend two million dollars, and so they'd just spend two million dollars, and so it was uh, yeah, it was it was invigorating. Wow, and mm. and I, I like was it. Enjoyable as well, like um, being inside a corporate structure and not being um, in in full ownership. And the reason I ask that is often like sometimes the things that are the least enjoyable are the times when you learn the most. <laughs> yeah. So 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 I mean, I, look look, it was it was enjoyable and unenjoyable. I, I think that like the you know certainly um, there was you know suddenly I was having to justify decisions which um, previously I hadn't had to justify. Um, but there's a real difference between yeah. So the first time I'd worked in in, in the corporate world, I was you know, I was um, Hell bent on kind of progressing my career and making sure I didn't offend anyone, or or or, or yeah, I, I made sure I scratched the right people's back and, and all of that sort of BS that goes along with those kind of roles. At this point, I don't actually care, right? So because if if you know if the worst thing that can happen is that like I get fired and hey, I've just sold my business anyway, so it's sort of like it's like. There's sort of this element of like going, okay, I can actually kind of be who who I am for a change, which is a luxury that virtually no one in a corporate's afforded, unfortunately. That's remarkable. And t- tell me about then um, coming back and doing that that classic thing of um, y- you know using your your capital to invest in um, startups, but also your social capital because that's the hugest thing here. When people who have had a successful exit, they have so many opportunities, so many people coming to them with. The, you know, their ideas that they want help with. And the ones you choose are the ones that then uh, the less sophisticated money will follow. You, you you help them with funding just by being there. And, and it, you kind of make a big promise to each of these things. Yeah. I mean, look, I'd like to, I'd like to, you know, pretend that there was some kind of grand strategy to, to, um, to giving back, but actually, you, you know, I just stumble along really. And, um, and what happens is that, you know, once I'm sort of, Oh look, look! People just start ringing you up, and you kind of start having a conversation, and yeah, you know, people are saying, "Hey, look, um, can you give us some advice, or can you give us some help, and so on?" And um, and um, you know, my my attitude towards towards advice is kind of well publicised. I think advice is just largely nostalgia, right? That that most of the time that that um, you know, people give advice, it's just sort of they've they've taken sort of their sort of warm feelings about the past and sort of dusted them off and and kind of presented them as being something credible when um, in fact most of the decisions you actually make when you're in business you you make under duress right and you only um you only make them seem strategic when you um, post rationalize them later <laughs> um, and so so um, uh, so yeah I, I kind of rather than sort of getting into the advice space I sort of just decided I would um I would uh, initially just Try and cheerlead a little bit. Try and encourage people and do those bits. What 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 I found very quickly though is that um, is that the, the slim pieces of advice that I did have um, were going stale really quickly anyway, right? And so um, you know, right at the beginning, the first few companies I, I dealt with, I might have shared some of the things which we learned at Sonar Six. But but now, if I look at the work that I'm say doing with with, with Ask Nicely, you know, I'm sharing with them lots of the things which which 
I learned it at ProMap or you know or, or, or Plex or other places along the along the line. And so it's it's actually just about um, you know, a lot of that kind of uh, um, you know stuff which we could kind of nicely package up as, as giving back and so on is really just me being you know, trying to stay current. You're, top, yeah. you're topping up at the same time. <laughs> yeah. As, yeah, pretty much. And, and what about the, the, the products you chose? So a couple of those that you mentioned there, um, Ask Nicely, who have been um, really successful in the, the NPS um, space, which mm. uh, you, you know customer satisfaction uh, ratings for companies, I guess is a crude way of describing it. Um, ProMap, which um, helps people map out processes. Uh, Flossy, which um, is kind of like a connector to drive business for small um, salons and, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, give people good experiences when they get there. What, what's the kind of through line? What are the things that um, that, that, that attract you to companies? Oh, look, um, I, I'm, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've said this, this, this before and it makes me sound kind of cold, but I'm, I'm primarily attracted to markets, right? So when you look at a market and you go, hey, there's a, there's a, there's a big market here with a big opportunity, then, it, then it's, then it's, um, then it's fun because you can kind of you can grow something and you can take it somewhere. So if you look at the the market, say if we talk about us nicely and you know the market for customer feedback or customer advocacy, well it applies to almost all businesses. It's just it's just a massive market. So even if you only get a small percentage of it, you can be successful. But moreover, if you do get a big big chunk of it, you can build yourself something of significance. You can build yourself an iconic iconic business. And um and and those things interest me. Um yeah the same with with you know, if you look at something like like Flossy, which is in here in beauty, well, here in beauty in New Zealand alone is a billion dollar market. Mm. Yeah, these are these are huge markets, right? And so, you know, big markets with some opportunity to to um, you know, change them, disrupt them, move them are the things which which probably appeals to me most. And and then I'm interested in you know, in the people that are in those in those businesses. Tell me about getting back on the horse. So you know, you're probably pretty busy. You've got board positions. You're an advisor. You're working in a bunch of um, you know. Pr- Pretty successful international companies. You've got you've got cash in the bank. Surely you don't need to go back on. What what leads you to go back and start Joyous? Yeah, I, I, it is kind of strange, isn't it? I think it's a little bit like um um, you, you know, I mean, if I look at my kids, I, I you know love my kids, but if, if I think about really, if I try and think back to what they were like when they were six months old, I sort of can't remember what it was like. I just have this vague recollection that it was it was. Hard work. It was just unreasonable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah unreasonable. <laughs> and um, and um, and and I think that's the thing. It's like um, it's it's a bit like that. I I may have forgotten <laughs> what it was like to start a business because it's damn hard, right? And so I'm, I'm kind of reliving all of that right at the moment. But um, but that said, it's like you know, if you really want to, if you really want to build something and do something, yeah, you, know, you kind of you. It's much more enjoyable to get in there and do it yourself, right? And um, and I go to um. Yeah, you know, I go to things like the high tech awards and so on, and I look at the um, I look at the, the businesses we're growing in New Zealand, and I think to myself, I'd I'd rather be you know one of those, you know, kind of starting that and doing that. And um, and you know, the the, the the main thing though that really drove it at the moment was that that yeah, you know, we're really just entering a new period of enterprise software. So so yeah, you know, the, the history of enterprise software, you've got like pre SaaS, basically on premise software. It's about automating automating existing processes. Um, then you go through sort of ten or fifteen years, which is just putting stuff in the cloud. Yeah, you know, like so. So yeah, with with due respect to all of our businesses like Zero and Vend and Sonar Six and so on, they're really just taking an on-premise kind of process and going, oh, let's do that in the cloud. Now, 
you're actually going, hey, let's 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 create some new ways of doing things. Let's apply software into the enterprise in a way that 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 actually creates value that didn't exist before. And so, um, yeah, I think that that is particularly relevant in human resources. Yeah, there's a there's a yeah, human resources software is like the most you know, f- feeble excuse for 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 software out there from the perspective of it just does not and you know doesn't make people's lives better, does it, right? Yeah, it's not like you kind of sit there going, oh, well, because of using this particular payroll system, I feel that my day has somehow improved. In fact, normally the opposite. So there's this huge opportunity to actually, to actually you know, make work better for lots and lots of people by getting the kind of software piece of it right. And that, yeah, I mean, that just kind of drives you to get up every day and do something. And like, you can't just sort of sit there and get old. What was it, um, and, and this kind of idea of a conversation-based uh, experience, Tell me how that works in principle, because that's also yeah. an, an innovation past just um, the old login, punchy yeah. card kind of approach to things. Yeah. Well, so 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 this is just like it's a classic you know, um, case of returning to the past, really, because if you if you think about most processes in, in organisations, they were conversations, right? So you know, in the olden days, <laughs> yeah, if you wanted to take leave, you'd go to your boss and go, "Hey, um, can I take leave?" <laughs> yeah, and your boss would go, "Oh, let me have a look." Oh, you. you You've got no leave days. You can't take leave. Well, yes, you can, but not next week because Jimmy's taking leave next week. Yeah, it's just a conversation, mm-hmm. and um, and we've kind of re- replaced that with yeah you know, some kind of arcane process where you go into some payroll system or self service system that you don't really understand, and you kind of yeah you and 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 our feeling was that hey yeah since that's a conversation, why don't we try turning it back into a conversation? If you turn one process into a conversation. Hey, maybe you can turn every process into a conversation. Like, um, oh, I've noticed um, there's there's oil on the driveway. You know, rather than kind of like, um, you know, uh, looking up what the the health and safety software tells you to do, why don't you just use the same kind of conversational paradigm? And so that's what we've built at Joyous. We've gone off there and said, hey, let's let's turn all HR processes into conversations. Um, it seems so. So HR processes that's um, right out to mapping health and safety what other so it's yeah. not just kind of leave things what's in the mix well well there's lots of things that you do in the kind of employer employee relationship right and i think that so so the sort of things we do is we do um yeah we do pulse pulse surveys you know so feedback employee feedback um uh we do you know time and attendance you know, i want to swap shifts um you know uh you know health and safety um uh, feedback on on other staff, um, f- you know, so that sort of three sixty feedback. Mm. Um, you know, w- w- how is your manager treating you? Um, uh, look, there's 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 a huge a huge range of things which which we do, um, and um, it's uh, I, I think that the other part of it too though is that if you look at if you look at software generally, but particularly HR software, most of it's been developed for 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 um, what I'll sort of put in, in, in inverted commas is the knowledge worker, right? And so that people are developing software for people in offices, effectively. Mm-hmm. And we're saying that most people don't work in offices. Most workers are in, you know, they're on the shop floor or they're in, they're in hospitality, they're in construction. Yeah, they're on and site. So, they're, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, 10 years ago, sort of uh, computing and software didn't really reach into those environments, whereas now, you know, everyone has a smartphone, everyone's kind of connected, you know, so you're actually going, hey, there's a whole... A whole world of workers out there that really haven't had, um, you know, access to great, great tools, and that's yeah, and, yeah. and also just that that simple concept of like, um, you know, you want to catch everyone, so you do them. You know, one day they get an annual review; it's a day, and and you know that's not a great time to catch problems if they're happening. And that idea of yeah. the pulse checking in, breaking up those big tasks into lots of little questions, keeping a constant kind of understanding of what's going on. 
you know, that that in a non-tech way is not really sustainable. You couldn't have a um, an HR person calling people up every day and going, hey, just checking in quickly, how you going? <laughs> but you, you can do that through the tech. Yeah, and look, I mean, the, the way we describe it is that the yeah the annual anything is obsolete, isn't it? By the time you kind of get round to, to looking at something, if you're looking at it annually, well, you're, you're dealing with, with stuff that's no longer useful. Um, and I, I think that that is one of the big things that's changed in, in tech, really, is that lots of enterprise software has become what we describe as kind of microtransactional, that you actually have tiny little transactions where you take action all the time. So yeah, staff survey is a good example of that. Yeah, and and yeah, people used to do an, an annual employee survey and then they'd all sort of sit around and, and you know, I guess the executives would sit around and go, well, this is the, this is the um, summary of that and what are we going to do and so on. Whereas actually today, you, know, you kind of ask for feedback frequently and then when you get feedback, you take action immediately. And so you want to build systems of action that handle these like tiny transactions that you know, might be, someone might be, um, you know, someone might have done some great work and so you want to just be able to say, hey, that was a great job. You know, or someone might have identified an issue and you want to be able to address the issue. Um, and that, you know, that, that, that's, that's, a, that's about being continuous, isn't it? It's not about kind of big discrete processes. And, an interesting approach with Joyous as well is that um, you're really positioning it in the employee experience space rather than, you know, it's there to help all the employees get more out of their work rather than just help the HR managers yeah. have a better day. And part of that that's been really interesting is the way that um, you've brought in a group of voices and taken a leadership position through your, your blogs and your content marketing, I guess, around diversity and inclusion. Tell, tell me about that. That, that, that. It may not seem to be like the first place to jump, but it's really interesting. Yeah, look, I mean, look, the the, the idea that, that um, employees... Um, that the experience of employees is the most important thing probably is what drives that, right? So, so you, you look at that and go, okay, well, you want, um, you want to create an environment where uh, employees can flourish because employees that flourish will, will you know, build you a great business. I mean, that, it's, it's that simple, right? Um, if you look at how you kind of create those environments, they are inclusive environments, right? Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you, know, you can build, I don't know, some kind of blokish monoculture and it might work you know, for, for some industries, but generally speaking, if you're trying to do something inventive, you want a whole range of, of different kinds of thinking and so on. And um and um, you know, I I don't think we've necessarily thought um the, the way we thought about um diversity has been kind of shaped by some work that um or, or some comments I read from from uh, Dave Dodds from from Figured, and he um he made the point that that actually if you get things right at the start. And you build the right culture, you don't actually have to actively manage you know, diversity and inclusion at all, right? That, that if you hire the right people, then they will tend to hire more of the right people, <laughs> and, um, and, um, and 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 vice versa. So if you go off and as a for, uh, for instance, if you start by building the classic bro culture in um, in engineering, yeah, which is a you know, which is an established kind of kind of macho um, you know, male dominated engineering culture. If you start building that, then you will always have that because it will just keep, it will just keep, um, you know, it will keep employing. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the organism rejects any difference, yeah. Very much, right? And that will lead to, to a whole bunch of behaviours you don't want. But the biggest behaviour it will lead to is it won't be particularly inventive because yeah. it will just be self-referential. And so if you, get, if you get those hires right at the start and you build that team right at the start, then it will tend to build a, you know, build a diverse and inclusive team. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, it, it's funny. I, I still have to have the conversation with with people about why diversity is useful. 
But it's very, very simple, right? It's just it's purely it's purely that you actually need people who think differently, otherwise you'll just produce the same old shit as everyone else. Yeah, and that, that outcomes-based thinking comes through really strongly there. And what I quite like about um, about that is in your own portfolio, you said you set yourself a target to be two-thirds um, not simply pale, stale, and male. And, like, um, you know, that, that kind of, you know, you get the outcomes you aim for, and so um, you, you actually have to set those goals. Yeah, look, and, I mean, the disclaimer here is that I am pale, stale, and male. I mean, I, I fit, fit classically into that, 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 that mould. But at the same time, the only, um, you know, when, you know, when um, you know, I started investing and, and building the portfolio and so on, most of the people who did have you know, positions of influence and, and power were, were very, very similar to myself. And so, um, yeah, at that point, you, you go, hey, if you're actually, yeah, I've, I've often thought that, like, there's a lot, of, a lot of people out there who are in the world of investment um, who just don't seem to take responsibility for diversity themselves, right? They're, they're quite willing to say, hey, look, we, we, we want the organisations we're involved in to have, you know, have a diverse agenda and so on, but at, at the same time, you should put your money where your mouth is. And I think that what happens in, in, you know, in early-stage investing is that there's, there's so many factors that you kind of have to build yourself a set of rules anyway. You have to build yourself a set of, like, this, these are the sort of businesses I like. So I mentioned before I like businesses with, with, with large markets. Well, that's not dissimilar to saying, well, I like businesses which either have you know, Maori or Pacifica leaders or, or, or female leaders. Um, you know, and I'm not saying you want to be, you know, I'm saying that that's exclusively what I like, but you go, okay, that's, that's good to have that as part of, part of your kind of mix when you're, Developing your investment hypothesis because then you're actively contributing to to you know to making the environment better, um, and you know my portfolio is small, so these mean these mean yeah this doesn't mean like I have three hundred companies like this yeah, yeah, yeah it means it but when you're picking you know five six seven eight companies to invest in like let's let's look at the the leadership of that and of course the other thing too though at the most at the most simple um, economic level yeah. Diversity kind of reduces risk to an extent because yeah. you have like you know, people who think differently in different situations. Um, whereas if everyone kind of thinks the same, then you have effectively more sy- systematic risk. But also people who have um, who have uh, more to prove tend tend to work harder. And it, and it, it, it amazed me when I when I did work for um, for uh, NZTE Beachheads. Um, yeah, the number of kind of organisations they'd put me in front of to help who were just sort of Middle class white guys who are going to make it anyway just was was depressing. You know, it's like you, you know, whereas you know, now I have more involvement with things like Hatch Youth, which is trying to help um, uh, yeah, Pacifica Youth um, yeah, build businesses, um, and and those are places where actually like if you are going to try and make a difference, let's make let's 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 put your effort where you'll make the biggest difference, mm-hmm. not where you'll just make a kind of marginal marginal improvement. What advice do you give to those entrepreneurs starting out that you work with? What's your What's your advice for entrepreneurs? Um, look, I, I like I, I always start with the disclaimer about advice being nostalgia. Really, I mean, I think that that your your role when you're working with entrepreneurs is 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 oftentimes um, to provide them some kind of coaching um, just on on how they how they run their own thought processes. Um, I think that the, the the thing is that that what you find most of the time is that that entrepreneurs will be much better at, at running their businesses than you could ever possibly be, right? Because they're they're deeply involved, they know the markets, they understand all those bits and pieces. The bit which which is often missing is just um, maybe um, one of two things. One is is a uh, a lack of confidence, right? And and 
so saying that entrepreneurs have a lack of confidence is almost oxymoronic because most of them are people who are ridiculously optimistic. You'd be an unusual entrepreneur not to be optimistic. But also, you don't have a lot of sounding board. You don't have a lot of places to actually question your decisions. And so it's good just to actually have someone to talk it out and to, to kind of hug it out sometimes. And I think that that's, um, yeah, that's, a, that's a role. So you're the yeah, you're part of the the, the the cheerleading squad more than being the yeah, the, you're not the number ten, right? <laughs> so and um, so I think that's one part of it. The other part of it too, though, is that there is like um, there is really established rules on how you build some of these kind of businesses. So building a SaaS business has a really established set of rules, and sometimes it's just a matter of of making sure people understand what those rules are and and and, and where to find them. Um, yeah, so the metrics of SaaS businesses are really, really well described. Yeah, what the, the, the sort of things you need to focus on are well described, and sometimes it's just a matter of uh, reminding people those are the things you need to do. And having having had quite a lot of um, success, uh, you, you know, had, had a good exit, um, built an international company, uh, be, been involved in governance of a bunch of very successful companies, seen them through the whole journey in some cases. Mm. How do you how do you define success? What 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 success look like to you? So I'm, I'm, I'm. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I'm, I don't. Yeah, when it comes to the success of the portfolio, I, I think a lot of that is optics too, right? I mean, certainly, um, you know, I've managed to pick some great companies to be involved in, um, but I've also been very careful in the ones which haven't been great. We've just swept those under the carpet. So, so, um, so, so to create the uh, the appearance that everything is good. Um, I, look, um, I, I um, um, uh don't know if I actually have a, a, a good definition for, for success. I, I think that like life is really just putting one foot in front of the other a lot of the time. And so you kind of, you kind of have to have momentum. My, um, um, my sort of guiding principle is there's a, there's a couple of expressions. There's, a, there's an expression in, in, you know, which, is, which is popular in, in, in English-speaking countries, which is that, that life is short, right? And so that you kind of want to cram lots of stuff in there. And so to me, if I look back on, on a year and I go, Hey, was was that a successful year? And that will typically be a year where where it was generative, where yeah, where we where we created something out of nothing, where we yeah, we did some stuff, yeah, we did some creative stuff and we built something. And so so there's there's that piece of it which is like continuously doing something to me is is a bit of a definition of success. But there's another expression which I like too, which is um, which I, I think gets gets positioned as being a Chinese expression. But I think lots of things get positioned as being a Chinese expression if no one knows where they come from. And this is that um, that life is long. <laughs> You know, and that the decisions that you make you know um, today you know they last for a long time and 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 also when you um you know when you do things uh you know if you get something wrong it doesn't really matter because in ten years time people will have forgotten and um and so I think that like um you know to, to me a successful successful life is one where you can kind of focus on doing stuff every day but you can also have this 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 long term view that says hey look look how does what I do now you know impact myself and impact the world in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years' time. That's magic. Thank you so much, <laughs> Mike Carden, the uh, co-founder and CEO at, uh, at Joyous. Um, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your story today. Hey, you're welcome. It was lovely to be here. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Alice with Liddell, for producing, and thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed this, do check out the back catalogue. There are more than 100 of these interviews with uh, great New Zealand business people. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by Spark Lab. 
Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.